when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the ongoing Brexit stalemate and the UK's total lack of progress in the talks with Brussels. Plus, we'll be looking at the sudden rise in violent knife crime and digging into who is to blame. I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels Bureau Chief, Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Deputy Opinion Editor Miranda Green and Social Policy Correspondent Robert Wright. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, then why not subscribe to receive it every Saturday morning or you could even leave us a nice review. So what happened with Brexit this week? Not a lot. And that in itself is rather concerning. With 20 days to go until the UK is set to leave the EU, there was no sign of any breakthrough in the talks with Brussels about how to fiddle with that Irish border backstop to make it more palatable to Conservative MPs. So Mrs May is approaching another meaningful vote next Tuesday with nothing to help her through. So Alex Barker, if you can just begin by giving us a bit of a sense of what's been going in Brussels this week, that talks have been ongoing between the UK teams and the EU teams. Jeffrey Cox, the very boisterous Attorney General, has been there to try and get something, some kind of breakthrough, but he's been laying proposals that have not gone down particularly well. No, I mean, this was this was probably one of the worst weeks of negotiations we've had in this whole process, really. They were pretty bad-tempered. They didn't make much progress, uh, and the stakes are pretty high. We had a meeting, really the most important one yet, between Jeffrey Cox, the UK's top lawyer, attorney general, and Michel Barnier, the EU's chief negotiator. And the Brits presented their ideas for what revisions they want to the Brexit package for the first time. And it was a pretty complex enhancement of the arbitration panel that they have in the withdrawal treaty already. And the aim was to provide a kind of guarantee, some reassurance that the backstop plan for Northern Ireland couldn't be indefinite, that if there was no agreement or ability to find a replacement to the backstop, that Britain wouldn't be held in this arrangement forever, that there were alternatives if the UK had shown good faith and made reasonable efforts to find these alternatives. So before I launch on trying to explain what the arbitration was, let me tell you that when Sabina Weyand, the um, EU's deputy negotiator, tried to explain to ambassadors what the UK's idea was, she had to go through it three times, and a lot of the ambassadors still didn't understand it. So it might be a bit much to explain, but a lot of it turned on this idea of reasonableness, 
which is a Victorian-era legal concept in English common law that relies on the good judgment of the man on the Clapham omnibus. And the EU side were pretty taken aback by this. And rather than being a kind of small tweak or a reassurance or a or something to help the interpretation of this agreement, they see it as a pretty fundamental attempt to rewrite the backstop and not something that could be negotiated in a week, probably not in six months, because they disagree with the main purpose of it. So when you listen to all that, Robert Shrimsley, it's not really a surprise that it's gone absolutely nowhere because as far as the EU is concerned, this deal was negotiated. Mrs May and the government have agreed to this deal and then she has now turned on it in a quite spectacular fashion and trying to unpick it and not just tweak but really change the meaning. And you do have this fundamental clash between the UK, which still seems to try and wanting to get rid of the backstop to please those Conservative MPs who don't like Mrs May's deal, and the EU who are not moving at all by the sounds of it. Yeah, we're heading towards what could be a spectacularly shambolic week in an era which has had quite a lot of them. But I mean, ever since Mrs May essentially whipped against her own deal a few months ago to demand legal changes to the backstop, this has been where we're heading. And I think there was a moment where Maybe nine, ten days ago, there were a few cracks in the facade of the Brexit hardliners, the ERG. And you thought maybe they finally tumbled to the fact that if they don't back this deal, the floodgates will open and they could lose everything or certainly lose much more than they have in this deal. But I have to say my sense going around Westminster this week has been if anything that their mood has hardened and they're trying to G themselves up into voting it down again. And I haven't heard anything yet that makes me think she's going to get this deal through or come close to getting this deal through. And the real risk for her and for them is that she then completely loses control of this process. And the negotiators on the European side are entirely aware of this and they know that uh, the Parliament could be about to take the whole process away from Theresa May or certainly limit her room for manoeuvre. So they have very little incentive at this stage to blink, especially for a Prime Minister who's reneged once on a deal and shows no signs of being able to deliver the votes if they help her. Well, and that's what the Prime Minister and the Chief Whip told the Cabinet this week. They said that if the party doesn't back this deal and get it through, then Parliament will take the whole thing out of Mrs May's control. And she also went up to Grimsby for a speech which the key line of it was, let's just get it done. And she was saying people are fed up with Brexit, which is probably true, and just want to see it over the line now. But she was also having a swipe at the EU here, saying the EU needs to think carefully, which I'm sure the EU's response would be, Alex, is this is not our fault at all. We did this deal, we signed it off, and now you're trying to change it. So why are you trying to blame us? Yes, and how they handle the blame game that will stem from either the vote going down again or even worse, a no-deal exit, is certainly in their minds at the moment. I think they're thinking through what they do with the kind of reassurances they are willing to give. Do they agree that now with the Prime Minister, even though it looks pretty certain that the vote is going to fail again. Do they do it later? Do they hold off to a point where it looks like the vote really is the decisive one? Or if it doesn't satisfy the Prime Minister, do they just publish unilaterally on Monday and say, look, this is all we can give. This is the kind of reassurance that's possible. And say, look, that's it. We can't offer any more. And try and scotch that sense in Westminster that, you know, if you just keep on pushing that ultimately a fundamental change will be accepted by the EU. So these are the calculations that the EU side are working through. 
And if you look at the Prime Minister's speech in Grimsby, I think a lot of it is her trying to convince the EU leaders, who she's calling this weekend, I think all of them, virtually all of them, she's trying to convince them to say, look, this really is it. Don't hold back. Offer everything you can. This is the vote that matters. And I'm not sure they believe her at the moment. I have to say, I find the whole process of the expectation management that this government has engaged in for a very long period of time is quite staggering. I mean, let's just get on with it as if you've been told to finish the last spoonful of rice pudding rather than change the economic and constitutional nature of the country in three weeks' time. The way that she bigged up what Geoffrey Cox was going to achieve was out of all proportion to what was likely to be secured. And even if you go back as far as the creation of the backstop, a subtler politician... A David Cameron, for example, a Tony Blair, would have come back and declared this was game, set and match for Britain. We've got an extraordinary deal. We've got this fantastic thing. The EU didn't want to give it to us, but we fought for Britain. We've got this amazing opportunity here. The EU hate this. They're going to be desperate to get us out of the backstop. No point has Mrs May shown any of the subtlety or skill necessary to pull her MPs into line. And it is a staggering failure of leadership. And part of it is how divided the Conservative Party is on this issue, though, Robert, because if David Cameron was leading a party that was, yes, there were some recalcitrant people on the right, but they were broadly behind his leadership. With Mrs May, every utterance she does, she's sort of annoying people on one side or the other, that if she was asked today in the press conference about a no-deal Brexit, if she says, yes, we could still leave without a deal, then she annoys the Remainers in the government, and if she goes the opposite way, it's vice versa. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly a very unfortunate position for him. I mean, the no deal is another interesting example. What's she going to do? Is she going to whip for the no deal vote? We're still waiting to hear for certainty. Which way is she going to vote when that vote motion comes to the Commons on Wednesday, as we all assume it's going to? You also have to factor in that, you know, a number of the Brexiters are also involved in the blame game, which is avoiding it. And they will have a lot at stake in being able to say whatever is secure, that it wasn't the Brexit they wanted, it wasn't the Brexit they campaigned for, and their wonderful Brexit has been ruined by Mrs May's incompetence. So, Alex, to talk about the role of Geoffrey Cox for a moment. So, up to now in the negotiations, most of it was done by Ollie Robbins, who's the Prime Minister's Chief Europe Advisor, and also the various Brexit secretaries, David Davis and Dominic Raab. But following Mr Raab's resignation, he's not been involved in the negotiations with the EU, really. He's been focusing on no-deal planning or so we're told back at home. The Prime Minister decided to send the Attorney General, one, because he is a Brexiter and is trusted by the party, and two, because it's his legal advice that is going to be decisive in winning around the DUP, who are for any strategy to get this thing through the House of Commons and other Brexiters. What's the sense of him in Brussels and how he's conducted himself? Because based on what you were saying earlier about this arbitration idea, it sounds like he's coming to this thing quite late and isn't actually proposing anything that's going to be realistic. Yes, I mean, he's a very controversial figure here. I hear some pretty scathing things. You hear that sometimes in negotiations like this. But what is certainly the case is he's come to this extremely late. That may not be his own fault. He's in a role that you would normally not put an attorney general. And he is raking over the contents of a treaty that was negotiated over the course of a year. And a lot of the arguments that are being resurrected were fought over many months ago. So the frustration is great on the EU side that pretty fundamental things are being raked over again. At the same time, they see a degree of dissonance between what the Prime Minister's been telling other EU leaders and what Geoffrey Cox 
has been asking for, and it's raised what has been a perennial question in this negotiation, which is, who is the UK negotiator? Theresa May has always had in the kind of sidecar a minister who is a partner and potential saboteur to the negotiation, uh, often Brexiters who are, take a harder approach than her. With Geoffrey Cox, it's not just someone with a political career to think about. He's also got his legal reputation to consider, and he needs some changes to be able to credibly stand up and say his legal advice has been revised. And he certainly left this week without curing the kind of concessions from the EU that would allow him to do that. And as much as you can say, I know this thing is changing all the time, but what sort of thing do you, because we've always said when we've talked about this before, that, that she will get something from the EU and some kind of advanced arbitration system, depending on the man getting the bus from Clapham seems quite unlikely. But what kind of thing are you hearing about, Alex, that she might actually get, whether it's this week, this weekend, or whether it's after the council, or whether it's in the day before Brexit? So there's three strands to this. There's something that's actually out in the open now. It's this process for looking for alternative arrangements, what they call the unicorn hunt. That will be detailed more comprehensively, but it's a kind of aspirational thing after Brexit. You then have changes to the political declaration on future relations. You can throw in things like better protection for employment rights and things like that. That's supposed to lure some Labour MPs into the Theresa May's camp. And then the meat of it are the reassurances on the backstop that fundamentally are interpretive. They try and draw out what's in the treaty and say, look, the treaty already mentions the fact that the backstop's supposed to be temporary. Let's really underline that. Let's possibly set some kind of soft target date for where you could work up alternative arrangements. I'm not sure on the details, but the core point is that the backstop is there if the talks on trade fall apart, and it's only going to end under this treaty if the EU and the UK agree that they have something to replace it or replace parts of it, and the EU are are never going to give up that veto. And I think that position has hardened rather than softened over the past couple of months. And based on that, Robert, what do you think this all means about where Labour is at the moment? Because obviously Mr Corbyn made that move to say we might back a second referendum and then this week turned the car around again and was talking about actually delivering a jobs first, a.k.a. softer Brexit. And Mrs May announced the Stronger Towns Fund this week, which is pouring money into parts of the country that have been the so-called left-behind towns that voted heavily to leave the EU, which was actually received as a bit of an insult by Labour MPs because the sums were very small over a long period of time. And in fact, the kind of MPs you'd want to be winning over, the Ruth Smiths around Stoke-on-Trent, the Lisa Nannies in Wigan, in fact, just said, "Don't, I'm not interested in this, money's great, but it's so small, it's not worth taking seriously. I think the Labour position now is quite interesting. It's clear that Jeremy Corbyn felt bounced into having to promise or at least hold out the promise of the second referendum out of fear of the breakaway independence group. And it was quite successful in staunching the flow of MPs from his party. What's also clear, however, is that there are quite a number of Labour MPs who don't like, including the ones you've mentioned, who don't like this idea. And Jeremy Corbyn's main concern, I think, now 
is in stopping Labour MPs voting for Theresa May's deal. This is the ball game for him at the moment. You know, we're not quite sure what Jeremy Corbyn does want, but we know what he doesn't want, which is he doesn't want Theresa May's deal to go through. And I think what we saw this week with the reaching out to the 2.0 group, as they're called, talking about EFTA status or a softer Brexit, is an attempt to say to people in his own party as well, look, you know, there's so many things we could go for. You don't have to back this deal. If you don't like the referendum, maybe we can go for the Norway model, a model instantly he's always been very, very strongly against. And I think what you're seeing is him trying to shore up the Labour MPs vote for this week so that not too many of them feel tempted to go and side with Theresa May were she to whittle down her own numbers to a level where the deal could get through. At the moment, we're not in that place. But I think that what Corbyn's up to now is exactly just minimising the number of Labour So finally, for both of you, where we're actually heading to on this process that I've always thought Mrs May's deal would ultimately get through, possibly at the very last moment, once those assurances Alex was talking about emerge and once the prospect of a no deal is very true and real because a lot of people saying they want no deal and I'm not really sure they actually do. I do feel this week, having seen the mood music from Brussels and the mood music amongst the ERG, having spoken to a lot of folks in that group this week, people are not changing their minds in big enough numbers very quickly that the prospect of an accidental no deal feels to me as if it is increasing the idea that this week's votes don't resolve anything, that her deal is voted down, no deal is voted against and say the UK votes for a short extension and maybe the US for a long extension or something like that and we just end up in stalemate and stalemate means heading towards a no deal. Robert first, what do you think we're heading towards? Well I mean I was largely with you I think on this. My instinct was that of all the unlikely possibilities, the least unlikely was that she would get her deal but it's certainly looking very very difficult now and if parliament does vote down her deal then votes against no deal and votes to support an extension a lot of people who might have been forced to vote for her in the end are going to feel off the hook and one of the processes that we've seen all the way through this sorry saga is people not taking a decision if they don't have to and they'll all feel just a little bit relaxed and let it slide but we won't exactly know what Theresa may will do next If those things happen, there's a lot of pressure on her from within her own party to then offer indicative votes to say, okay, what's the next plan? We also have, we haven't mentioned it, but the House of Lords voted this week to reinstate the customs union in the trade bill. So that's something they have to get through. So could we accidentally head towards a no deal? Yes. I still don't think it's the most likely outcome, but you've got to factor it in as possible. Of course. And Alex? To secure a majority in Westminster, you need two big factors. One for everyone to feel like the concessions are exhausted in Brussels, and secondly, for everyone to feel as if this is a decisive vote. It doesn't seem to me like either of those conditions are going to be satisfied before May or June. And I wonder whether when we see an extension to that point, whether you might see Mrs May's government buckle or some other kind of shift in politics happen before we get to the point where we have a really decisive vote on her package. In terms of no deal, it's hard to see the positive momentum towards no deal. I don't think there is a majority in Westminster at the moment. At the same time, the more we trudge on, the more we go towards another extension, the more the impatience grows on the EU side and the more planning that's done about the no deal, uh, you can see people change their risk assessments and maybe start thinking that it's not so bad and maybe we can handle this and we can't manage to do anything else. So 
I think there the risk of no deal does rise, and the more we go on, the more it will rise. One big story has managed to knock Brexit off the front pages this week. Britain's growing problem with knife crime. The rise in youth violence, along with the brutal stabbings of some teenagers, has raised pertinent questions about the fabric of British society, but also political ones. Is the police underfunded? Is the rise in crime due to austerity? Should stop and search be ramped up again? And who ultimately is to blame? So, Robert Wright, you've written a lot of the stories about this for the FT. Can you explain why this has suddenly come to the light now that every time that we have a brutal stabbing, it generally makes the news, but it feels like over the past couple of weeks that something quite major is going on at the moment? Well, I'm not sure to what extent there is actually statistically something much worse than there has been over the last little while. I think essentially what's really happened is you've had some stabbings in areas that perhaps were not terribly badly affected before. You've had kids that people would not necessarily have thought would have been victim stabbed and that always ramps up the interest in this kind of thing, ramps up the concern. There is undoubtedly a real problem with a rise in serious violence. You can see that absolutely clearly, statistically, serious violence is getting worse. And there is a real question about why that is. So, Miranda Green, when we look at this, the stories which have particularly focused on teenagers, there was one girl, um, I believe a 17-year-old, who featured on many front pages this week, who was stabbed one evening. What's your sense on why this has suddenly come to light now? Because as Robert said, it's not really a statistical uptick. There's just a sense that everyone seems to be much more aware of it now. And as in terms of the British news cycle, Brexit has just pushed everything out of the way. But this is the first policy story in quite a while that I think has broken through. I think there's a range of factors which have propelled it onto the front pages. I think the fact that that victim you referred to is white means it got a lot more attention because unfortunately this is a problem that has been in parts of our cities where there aren't that many white teenagers to become victims and life being what it is that's allowed some sections of the population to ignore the problem or think it's somebody else's problem. I think it's suddenly become everybody's problem, which it was anyway. I also think that the police have sort of reached the limit of their patience with being told to do more with less. And so you had the extraordinary sight of Mrs May, Prime Minister, but former Home Secretary, publicly having to disagree with the most senior police officer in the country, Cressida Dick, who's now head of the Metropolitan Police, over whether police cuts made while she was Home Secretary have led to this uptick in violence on the streets. If you have a situation in which the government of the day is being told by vox pops of voters that they have to get a grip to such an extent that, you know, I've heard people in TV audiences say, we need the army on the streets. I mean, clearly that's an absurd suggestion. But if people think that violence and crime is out of control, it's a disaster for a government in power to have a Tory party in power with a former Home Secretary as Prime Minister on the back foot over crime and policing is really bad news for them. So this obviously is very, as Miranda said, Robert, is very important for Mrs May because when she was Home Secretary, this was during the years of when there was huge budget cuts to public spending as the Conservatives came into power to decide to reduce the deficit and police numbers were cut. 
That also came with a reduction in stop and search. And Theresa May and her advisor, Nick Timothy, have made the case publicly that 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 does not actually help reduce knife crime. And they did this because they had the right reasoning to do so. But it is very difficult for Mrs May because Sajid Javid, the current Home Secretary in Cabinet this week, asked for emergency stop and search powers and wanted more money for policing, both of which Mrs May said no to. There's a very complex set of set of things at work here and I think undoubtedly one of the things that the Tory right has seized on is the stop and search point. I'm not sure that stop and search is the biggest issue here and I think that has been used as a stick with which to beat both Theresa May and to some extent Sadiq Khan as Mayor of London. I think the funding issues are definitely important. There is an extent to which the police can try to become more efficient. That is true. On the other hand, you can't really lose 20,000 police officers in England and expect that to have no effect. But I think what you're really seeing here, the picture that I get from people, I've been out this week speaking to some people who work on the ground in these things, really all the public services have been cut in such a dramatic way that the safety net that used to catch a lot of these people has just gone you know, most of us probably didn't have a lot to do with youth workers in youth centres when we were growing up. A lot of the young people who potentially get involved in crime were going to these places and they're not there anymore. And that ultimately, those kinds of little cuts, when you make them across the board and local government budgets have been cut much more even than central government budgets, once you've had cuts to all of those things for the length of time we've had, you eventually get an effect. And I think that is what we're seeing. Miranda, this comes to one of the things we've talked about a lot on this podcast, which is the Conservatives' narrative about austerity here. And this is another example of something that the Tories have been in power for over eight years now, and they've got to own all the things that they have done in that time. And one of them is the big cuts across public services. Now, the narrative that we had for the first five years during the coalition years, they were all in it together. We all need to tighten our belts to get through this difficult period and get the public finances in a better order. Now, the public finances are clearly in a better state than they were now. Our debt level is much more sustainable than it was following the financial crash. But you do come to this problem that Robert said that once you take this away, you create an opening for the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn, who bizarrely is making the running on this issue because his past record on security and policing and all that sort of thing, it's against the grain of most mainstream political thinking. But because they can say the kind of thing Robert's just been saying, they can say, look, You've cut down police so much. If you want good policing, you've got to pay for it. And that was so effective for Labour in the 2017 election. You've got to think it's going to be effective for them this time. So the question is, what can the Tories do about this? You know, Do they do what Saju Javid wants and just give more money to the police and acknowledge the cuts have gone too far? Or do they have to stand firm? They need to act and they need to act fast because it's not a happy situation in terms of the way voters are feeling. I mean, I would just like to remind everyone that in parallel with this, there's a lot of anger building about school cuts. And, you know, thousands of school head teachers have written to the government to say, we can't really sustain a basic education service given how you're funding us now. And of course, because we're talking about youth services and youth crime. If you're not careful, it becomes a kind of negative spiral for those kids who get into trouble. I think in terms of the politics of austerity, what I do agree, I think that 
the real disaster actually was, you know, Roberts talked about the social safety net disappearing. The Tories had a political safety net during the coalition years because they could say... The Liberal Democrats. Yeah, exactly. And actually, a lot of the cuts that were promised, the extra cuts that were really severe, were to do with the 2015 Conservative Manifesto and George Osborne's ambitions, which changed from balancing the books to going into surplus. And really, the cuts that happened in those years where he was Chancellor of a slim majority Tory government, they're reaping the political whirlwind of that now. It's not just on these cuts to local authority services. It's also, if you look at the disaster that is universal credit, that is because they went from funding a major welfare reform properly to promising £12 billion of welfare cuts. They didn't think they were going to have to deliver because their Lib Dem coalition partners would have blocked it. So I think they've got a lot of problems with how they justify all the actions they've taken since they've been in sole control. How do you recover from that? I mean, it's very, very difficult. You cannot continue ignoring these protests about cuts because it is not, as it was at the beginning, low-hanging easy fruit. This is mainstream England, since we're talking about policing. These are the English schools and the streets on which we all live. One of the things I'm really worried about is paradoxically precisely that they will take action because I think the real danger here is that you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction of passing some new law. And one thing we really, really know about how to get crime down is that passing some punitive new law, which one's already hearing people in the Conservative Party asking for, doesn't work. The people who are engaging in these crimes are people with chaotic lives. They don't think about the future. They don't plan the future. So telling them that potentially there's a much stiffer sentence if they're caught with a knife is not effective. And the worry is that people will pass some law like that and think that they've done something. And that's a real danger. And of course, the infamous example of that is the Dangerous Dogs Act that's always held up as a knee-jerk legislative response to public sentiment that was bad law, badly enacted, that didn't do what it was supposed to do. So based on your reporting, what are the kind of things the government could do? So obviously, putting more money into police funding and boosting the number of officers on the street is something I think most people agree would help with some of that as well. But it's this great issue of giving people a stake in society. And as Miranda was saying, this is where community and youth centres were so important for those people who don't have the stability of school or family network or what have you. They had somewhere element that would keep them away from gang culture there. Based on your reporting, speaking to people, what is it beyond a knee-jerk reaction that would help? When you speak to the police, one of their frustrations is that they are actually acting as the backstop public service. So, you know, they're the one group that has to respond to a call-out. So one thing that a lot of people mention is cuts to child and adolescent mental health services. There's a very strong link. People have been talking about the rate of school exclusion being an issue here. It clearly plays some role, but one of the things is that child and adolescent mental health services, if you're not getting your mental health needs dealt with, you're likely to end up excluded and you're also more likely to end up in a gang. So that those cuts, I mean, anybody who's had anything to do with those services knows that it's really, really difficult to get any kind of help from them. Similarly, schools are under a lot of pressure. Miranda's mentioned cuts in schools. Schools are also under pressure to get good exam results. So by all accounts, the pastoral care in schools has been whittled away. That's something that undoubtedly could be restored. But 
the thing is, it's kind of everything, and that's what makes it difficult. We're really prone in this area to focus on one issue. I mean, I remember last summer, it was social media was what was driving all this, and you dealt with YouTube videos for people taunting each other, you'd solve the problem. This week, it's been school exclusions, but really it is everything, and, and the problem is that so many things have just decayed a little bit that you need to do an awful lot of things to restore the situation. Yeah, I quite agree, because there's a sort of terrible blame game going on, actually, by the time we've ended this horrible week. And, uh, you know, the schools are being told it's your fault because you're excluding these kids and then they're turning to violence. And they're really quite irritated by this, even though some of them have been being naughty because they've got rid of the kids who they don't think are going to make the right GCSE grades. But it draws attention once again to the very poor underfunded provision in pupil referral units, which is where excluded kids end up, and the idea that we're not catering for a chunk of young people who can't achieve and can't get into mainstream education success and then are sort of funnel into work and all the rest of it. You know, back in the 1990s, the Blair government invented something called the Social Exclusion Unit. Over the years, various other prime ministers have tried to have czars to look at similar sorts of issues. David Cameron actually caused a lot of controversy with his attitude because they called it the problem families, which seemed to be a bit moralistic. But there clearly is a place in government for a coordinated approach, which is cross-departmental and which looks at all the factors and can zoom in. And when local government is so denuded of resources, you have to do something from the centre. I'm sorry, I, I may have given the wrong impression when I said they had to act. I completely share Robert's nervousness about some awful new set of stringent regulations on knife crime. It's more a sense of trying to get a grip of the problem across Whitehall and get all the different agencies working together. I very much share Miranda's feeling about the school irritation and what it strikes me is what kind of outcry would there be if a kid got stabbed in a school? Head teachers really can't win in this situation. You're either in trouble for excluding too many kids or if you don't exclude the right kid and somebody gets stabbed, what are you going to do? So, you know, some of these kids represent a real danger to themselves and others. And it seems to me quite appropriate that some of these kids should be excluded from mainstream schools for the safety of everybody else. And I think it's finally, Miranda, this again strikes me as just the kind of topic that should be deserving more attention than it's getting because of the ups and downs of Brexit, which we were talking about earlier in the podcast, that we're really getting to the final crunch point here of this issue and all these other policy areas which are affecting people's lives day to day are in fact probably already deciding what people are thinking about the political parties having a much greater impact on what kind of trade deal we have with the EU or not. And I guess that's a big problem for the Conservatives. And it's a way why I think they're probably quite keen to get rid of Theresa May and bring in a new face, a new generation, all this kind of stuff, because she's very bad at leading on domestic issues. You know, she is going to be defined by Brexit no matter how much she wants to. And once we get over the hump of the next couple of weeks, more issues like this, education will be one. The health service is doing okay at the moment, but that's kind of, again, it's still under huge pressure, as Robert was mentioning, mental health issues before. There's still a big question about Heathrow Runway, HS2. When you just look at the whole area of things that really matter to people, this strikes me as something that really has cut through. Yeah, and also in that list, you left off university funding because there's a massive report about to come and the middle classes are unhappy about the level of tuition fees. And as we've discussed before on this podcast many times, 
the choice that's before the Conservatives politically is difficult. Do they edge slightly towards the Labour position or do they dig their heels in and give an alternative Conservative vision of what Britain will be, which can sound harsh when people are looking at what's happening in their own community? So on tuition fees, on policing funding, on school funding, do they just give a fraction of what Labour is promising? There are lots of Conservative commentators who think that's a disastrous thing to do. But on the other hand, you can't ignore voter anger. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you to Alex, Robert, Miranda and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed what you've heard and would like to see more FT journalism, then do see our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder. Until next time, thanks for listening. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.